0: Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not
1: forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first true crime case, there's no going back. So let's do this just before we get into things we wanted to mention that we do have a merch store there's a lot of great stuff so if you guys want to check it out and support the show you can go on etsy and look us up at terrible true crime it also really helps when you rate the show and leave us a review or a comment wherever you listen If you follow us on social
0: media, you've seen the amazing art we posted done by Tanya Skandalis. She is an amazing Canadian artist that does custom digital art. So please go check her out. Her Etsy shop is Tanya Studio Co. She has some art for sale and you can also message her for any custom pieces. For 10% off, you can use code TERRIBLE10.
1: All right, let's get into some updates. So for me, in the last few weeks, I've kind of been starting to plan my summer, which is exciting because I'm very ready for summer to be here. And we've booked a couple weekends to do some camping. So I'm not a big camping person, but since we live in Alberta now, it's a pretty popular thing to do. So we're trying to kind of fully dive into the lifestyle and spending the weekends in the mountains and all that all that good stuff i like being outdoors i don't love sleeping on the floor i like having running water <laughs> But anyway, all that being said, we're looking forward to it. We haven't booked like a week straight or anything. It's it's one or two nights maximum. <laughs> that's about all we can handle. Are you doing like glamping again? I remember you did that once and it was really nice. So we're doing three regular camping weekends and then one glamping weekend. Okay, cool. That's so fun. Yeah, yeah that is kind of fun. It's just something to do. It's like an extra like experience. Mm-hmm. Is Ollie going to go with you? Yes. And uh, we're excited because so last cute. year we froze at night like it was so cold the temperature just like completely dropped at night and it was miserable but this year we have a little you know living furnace (laughs) and you can sleep right between us and keep us both warm so we're excited about that (laughs) i love it and other than that i have to rant about the fact that i not a social media person and have tried to take over or we both tried to kind of you know dive into it head first for this podcast. The amount of times I've had to redo an entire TikTok when I was almost done and ready to post it, I'm so frustrated. If anyone has any tips, if anyone's a TikToker and knows what they're doing, let me know because it is not easy and I have a newfound appreciation for everyone who makes content on that app.
0: Yeah, it's not user-friendly, that's for sure.
1: No, and like I said, I like I just get to the point where I'm like ready to post and I'm like, oh, finally it's done. And then like something happens and the entire thing is gone and I'm like, (laughs) Okay, don't cry, don't cry. (laughs) For sure tested my patience. And the last thing I wanted to mention is it's another TV show recommendation, so we talked about a couple last week. This one is actually directly linked to our case, but it's a show called The Detectives. The show basically covers Canadian true crime stories and they have like usually the lead detectives or investigators there and they're interviewing them, so it's kind of like that same style as catching a killer. But there's like full reenactments throughout with like very good actors. So I don't know, it was just like very well done, very well put together. And uh, the episode that I watched for the case this week was season one, episode one, and I purchased it on Apple TV, I think just to, you know, the easiest way to kind of get it as quick as possible. And I think I'm going to go ahead and buy the three seasons that are on there because it was really interesting and I feel like it's going to give us some really good ideas for more cases to do.
0: Yeah, that's true, especially since they're all Canadian based. That's pretty interesting. I think I've seen a bunch of documentaries that have like the detectives, but I've never seen anything where it's a reenactment with actors. So that's a nice uh, change. Yeah.
1: And I had to Google it after because I was like, there's no way this is a Canadian TV show. It probably just happened to cover a Canadian case, but no, it's like a full Canadian TV show. So anyway, it's pretty cool if you haven't seen it and you like that kind of stuff. I definitely recommend it.
0: Well, speaking of TV shows, I have nothing to recommend for true crime related TV shows, but I've been back into my Love Island game. (laughs) I'm watching so much Love Island lately. Um, So I've been watching a lot of the UK seasons. And I've been learning because I love to, like, search up, you know, who's still together, you know, how did their relationship end, who wins, or whatever. And I've noticed from the seasons that I've watched that three people that were on different seasons of of Love Love Island UK have committed suicide after the show.
1: Are you Mm -hmm. serious?
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. So there's two contestants on different seasons, and then the host, actually, as well. Yeah. Wow.
1: That mm-hmm. is strange. I think her name's
0: Carolyn Flack. Uh, she's like the the main host of the UK seasons.
1: I wonder like when you go into the public eye like that, especially I think reality TV, you kind of become a target. I don't know. I'm just totally speculating, but the negative comments and stuff I'm sure are horrible that you're getting.
0: Yeah and if you're already dealing with any sorts of like mental health issues i'm sure that just really kind of makes it a lot worse so it must be really hard to to be judged off of you know what you see on tv um, yeah. so i don't know why i just found that out and i was like oh my god this is so sad and then knowing that while i'm still watching the season i'm just
1: like yeah that is really sad oh, yeah I- I mean, I would never want to be on TV like this. If For those of you who watch on YouTube, it's a lot for me, for my face to be like filmed. And I, yeah, I just, I feel like people are mean and the internet is vicious. And I don't know if that, like I said, it could have nothing to do with that, but I just, I'm sure that that doesn't help.
0: Yeah, oh, so, so I know that's like my strange update. I love Love Island, but just learning that was kind of like, oof, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. Um. My other update is that, I'm also really sad this week because I have really bad FOMO for missing the Justin Bieber concert that was on Sunday.
1: I could cry. (laughs)
0: quite literally how come you didn't buy tickets they're like three hundred dollars a ticket
1: oh they're like way too expensive and you've seen him before many times i've
0: seen i've seen him every time he came and you know we're like i'm an adult adult. yeah i i don't think i could just you know justify spending three hundred dollars on one ticket to go see him for like what two hours he's gonna be on stage (laughs) for so
1: i didn't go I'm You're really like, sad about it. adult me can't justify <laughs> child's me's crush on this man for three hundred dollars. Exactly, and I still very much
0: have Bieber fever full mm-hmm. force. Will forever have uh, a case of Bieber fever. And when I'm on TikTok this week, it makes me so sad because I see all his concerts on on TikTok, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, 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 it really hurts. So I just had to share that because I hope someone else is hurting with me too. That wasn't able to. Go <laughs> I'm see sure Justin. there are many. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's weird that he's well. It's not weird. I don't know. But Haley just had his wife just had all those like health complications recently. Like those from
0: the articles that I read, it was more of a headline versus oh, like because okay. headlines were saying that she had an actual stroke. Yeah, yeah. Whereas she was having more symptoms that could be like worrisome that it could like turn into right. a stroke. So like obviously it's still scary for her and it's still oh yeah you know health yeah. complications.
1: But if but, he's already um, on back on tour, like she yeah. must be. I. I hope she, that. she must be okay, right? Yeah,
0: and she must either be with him and, like, touring with him. I'm not sure, but, yeah. Oh, well, one day we will all
1: go to the Justin Bieber concert. One day again.
0: I need to go to, like, Front Row Justin Bieber concert because I've only yes. ever gone in, like, the nosebleeds, so... Yes, I we're, need like, to... getting so off-topic, but
1: <laughs> I went to... Ed Sheeran front row and like I I usually and I didn't buy the tickets I paid for them but my friend's the one who really wanted to do front row and it was like coolest experience like if you can get front row where you're not like front row behind someone where you can't see anyway I'm really short but if you're standing behind someone chances are like you're not seeing everything but if you have a clear view like it's really cool
0: and then there's that slight chance that they could look at you straight in the eyes and just be
1: like oh thank <laughs> Marie. you <laughs> marie's <laughs> lifelong dream is to be the one less lonely yo girl. <laughs> i'm not even joking when he came here and what i
0: was in maybe like grade eight or something like that grade oh yeah eight, whatever yeah, i think
1: i went to that one too. i was
0: fully decked out in his merch like didn't know how to do my hair my makeup i think i was in the 200s so i was like kind of close to where i could see the dancers like come and like pick the lonely girl as i see them walking up and down the aisle i'm like babe but i'm like oh, i'm so hot like they're so gonna pick me looking back down like dude sit down like they're not gonna pick you and like to this oh day i'm god. so so upset that they didn't pick me but then at the same time like thank god he didn't see me in that state um, you know, <laughs> but yeah, Does you still do
1: that? Does he still do that? I
0: don't, uh, yeah. I don't think so. No, I don't no. think
1: so. Oh my god, it's so funny! <laughs> I love your obsession with Justin Bieber, is one of my uh, favorite things. <laughs>
0: too good, too good. <laughs>
1: On a much darker note, here are the sources for this week's case. So we have a couple Wikipedia articles. There is a article from the website Stories of the Unsolved. Called the Wells Grey Provincial Park Murders. There is an article from Global News by Bill Graveland. And there's also a CTV article by Michelle Brunaro. There is an episode from The Detectives, which I mentioned earlier, season one, episode one. And I also listened to a podcast by Christy Lee. It's called Canadian True Crime. It's episode 86. So, as I mentioned in my updates, I was planning my summer camping trips. So, naturally, in the spirit of preparing ourselves for life's most terrible horrible things, I found the most terrifying camping-related Canadian case. Why would you do that to yourself? I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> honestly, I'm worried like this is, this is some dark stuff and I, yeah.
0: Like to be honest I would not want to go camp I like I don't even know What this case is going to be about But just knowing that I know I'm not going camping This summer
1: (laughs) And that's so funny Because when we started This podcast That was the whole thing right Like you were so scared Of true crime And I was like Do it Because you listen to it And then you'll feel like I am more prepared To deal with the situation If I You know If I happen to face A similar situation And that's always been me Like when I was growing up I was terrified of scary movies And stuff And then when I hit Like my teenage years I watched a ton of scary movies And I just felt like Oh it's not that bad like you just yeah. like face it or you like learn about it and you feel better yeah um I'm still scared after this case I don't feel prepared oh I might God. be canceling my
0: camera <laughs> I feel like I would just be scared in the moment like at, at, it's midnight I'm in my tent I hear a noise, and I feel like I would just be like, bye, drive away. Yeah, it's a good
1: thing that beer goes hand-in-hand with camping. (laughs) I plan on drinking several to be able to get through the night, (laughs) and you guys will understand why when I get into it. Oh, love it. It's August 2nd, 1982. The Johnson family is heading out for a camping trip. The camping trip is for about two weeks or so, and the family includes grandparents George and Edith Bentley, parents Bob and Jackie Johnson, and their 13 and 11-year-old daughters Janet and Karen. They had planned to camp just outside of Wells Gray Provincial Park in BC. The grandparents George and Edith were experienced campers. They loved finding secluded areas and spending time in nature. They camped very often and this time Bob, Jackie, and the two girls wanted to join them. George and Edith, the grandparents, I'll probably just keep mentioning that so we can get all the names straight and stuff, but George and Edith are the grandparents. They had a red and grey truck and had a large camper that sat kind of in the tailgate and above the truck and on top of that they had a small aluminum boat so they were just full campers they loved it they spent many of their weekends doing this they had even made modifications to their truck to be able to you know make camping easier or fit the camper on top not exactly sure but that's mentioned that they had modified their truck specifically to enjoy their enjoy their camping more during this camping trip the adults slept in the camper attached to the truck and the two girls slept in the tent. So we're four adults in the camper, two little girls in the tent. We don't have a lot of information about what the family was doing during the camping trip, but we can assume they're fishing, hiking, you know, they're doing campfires, all the good stuff you do when you camp with family. This was before cell phones, and George was known for picking very secluded camping spots, as I mentioned. The last time someone heard from the family was on August 6th, when Edith called one of her other daughters from what I assume was a payphone or a public phone, and everything seemed okay. This family seemed to be having, you know, a good time. But when Bob, the father, didn't show up for work on August 16th, his boss grew worried. And after having missed a few shifts already, he reported Bob and the rest of the family missing. Bob worked for the Gorman Brothers Lumber in West Bank and it was very unusual for him to do like a no call, no show. We've talked about this before, the no calls, no show are, are kind of scary, especially if it, it's a couple of days. Like it, It's a good practice for employers to be calling emergency contacts if someone is not showing up, you know, and if they can't reach emergency contacts then notifying. Law enforcement? I don't know. We always say, like, maybe it's an overreaction, but we'd rather overreact than underreact. Once the local police are notified, they head out to search for the family. This next part is from the BC Provincial Parks website.
0: Wells Gray has something to offer every outdoor interest. Lush alpine meadows, excellent birding and wildlife viewing opportunities, hiking for every ability, ranging from a few minutes on a level trail to many days with a map and compass, boating, canoeing, and kayaking. Guiding businesses offer horseback riding, canoeing, river rafting, fishing, and hiking. And the history enthusiasts can learn about the early homesteaders, trappers, and prospectors, or about the natural forces that produced Wells Gray's many volcanoes, waterfalls, mineral springs, and glaciers. The provincial park size is just over 541,000
1: hectares. Basically, this park is Huge, okay. Like whatever you can picture, triple it. Like it's very large. There's a lot of things to do. There are um, camping spots that you can reserve, but people can also kind of just show up, find a secluded spot, pitch a tent, and that's their camping spot for the weekend. So all this being said, local police actually searched for a few weeks for the family at both provincial and private campsites throughout the Wells Gray area, but were unable to locate them. Being that the park is so large, I'm sure they're thinking many things, right? Like the family could be lost something could have happened they can't even locate the site where they were camping that's how large the park is yeah so they have nowhere to like base themselves off of there are helicopters involved police volunteers fish and wildlife officials all of the above everyone kind of comes through to help with the search This next part is from Wikipedia. On September 13th, a mushroom
0: picker reported finding a burned out car near Battle Mountain Road that was similar to the one the Johnsons were driving. When the RCMP officers searched the vehicle, they found the burned body of the four missing adults who had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber weapon.
1: In the trunk were the remains of the two girls. So this is obviously horrifying and probably not at all what they expected. I think what my head would have gone straight to like, they're missing in the woods somewhere, but they're... You know, they're experienced campers and they're, you know, hopefully they're fine. But this is what looks like a brutal attack on the family. And this is three generations of a family just murdered. Yeah. It's hard to kind of understand how someone could have done this, how someone could have kind of overpowered or, you know, even managed to get the jump on the family. I don't know. But it's, it is really an awful thought that someone would be capable of doing this. Like was mentioned in the Wikipedia quote, there was obvious signs that the family had been shot, and when investigators examined the vehicle, they found no bullet casings. This led them to believe that the family could have been killed somewhere else. As I mentioned, we still have no idea where the campsite was, so investigators and anyone who's helping out is still looking for more clues. One of the big questions that was on top of investigators' minds was where was Jordan Edith's 1981 Ford truck and the camper? They found the car, but there was another vehicle with them and where could this have gone? In the spring of 1983, the crime was actually reenacted for TV cameras and was aired across Canada. So They were at the point where they didn't have any more information, they were kind of stuck. So what they did is they basically like those tv reenactments that we watch like on uh, crime shows you know you name it they reenacted the crime without the brutal killings and all of that but just to try and bark someone's memory just to see if this would ring a bell for someone and they aired it across canada like basically the entirety of canada was trying to help and solve this case Which is pretty incredible, like in 1983, to think about using. Like, they'll Mm -hmm. use the press as well, but just, you know, any visual medium that'll reach people, again, all across the country is pretty incredible. They would do this in hopes that someone would see this and it would trigger them to call with any information or any clues to who had done this. They also drove a replica of the 1981 Ford camper truck to Ontario and Quebec. So they did this because they had gotten several tips that the vehicle was traveling out east. So basically there was either the truck and camper they were looking for, or something that looked really similar in Ontario and Quebec and around there. So again, to kind of spark up some press and to see if anyone had any more information, investigators drove this replica from BC all the way to Ontario and Quebec and stopping in major cities and trying to get some press so they would stop at you know a major mall or anywhere like that and press would come and talk to the investigators so in every kind of major city that they were passing by they would get you know local TV time basically, probably I love, 6
0: o'clock news. Yeah, I love when investigators do something like this. Like for me, this is so something out of the box, you know, out of the ordinary and I absolutely love it.
1: Yeah, and so in the the detectives episode, um, the RCMP officer who is the, one of the top investigators in this case, his name is Mike Eastham. And that's exactly what he says, like it was such a brutal murder and they felt they, they obviously really had to solve it and they really wanted to solve it. And they were stuck, they had nothing else to go on so they were desperate and this is what they came up with and like you're saying I think it's pretty incredible for them to have done this. There was also a reward for finding the truck, it was $7,500 and 10,000 posters were sent out to police attachments and post office across North America. One of the important tips that investigators received was from a waitress that worked in Clearwater, which is 124 kilometers north of Kamloops, which is kind of the major city next to the Wells Gray Provincial Park where the family was camping. The waitress said that she'd seen two French Canadian loggers driving a similar truck to the one owned by the Bentleys. She helped the police develop a sketch of the two, which was spread throughout the media. Another sketch? Another sketch. So I looked so hard for this sketch to show you, we don't and I, have couldn't it. It. No, oh, I couldn't
0: find it. No, I can not find it. I love I sketches.
1: And then another tip came in from a park ranger who claimed to have seen the Bentleys camper parked at Bear Creek a few weeks prior. So Bear Creek, from what I understand, is either in Wells Gray Provincial Park or just outside of. Investigators were suspicious as to why he'd waited so long to come forward with the information, given how long it had been since the news of the murders had spread. But the ranger explained that he was, you know, ranging in a long cabin with no TV, kind of deep into the woods. Not raging, but <laughs> ranging. <laughs> <laughs> doing whatever rangers do. <laughs> After this, several more tips were called in to collaborate the ranger's story. The search then continued near Bear Creek. On September 14th of 1982, the police found planks of woods in a secluded campsite. They believed that these could have been used to level off a camper. They also found what was reported as George's favorite beer. And finally, to really reinforce their suspicion, they found... 22 caliber bullet casings so the investigators had finally found the camping spot where the bentley and johnson family were camping i don't know why but it gets me really emotional that they found his favorite beer I know. I just it's think like, that you relate that to like family members or friends and we all have that favorite drink or that one thing we pack when we you go camping or even drink on a night out and that just reminds us like whether you're like a rum and coke or you're a gin and tonic or you're a PBR gal, like it's just, it's part of you a little bit.
0: Yeah, like George was just enjoying his beer, you know, on vacation, camping. Ugh, it's just so sad.
1: Yeah, I think it's something we can just connect to, too, and I mean, there's always something we can connect to in these cases, which is why I think we not take them personally, but we both, you know, are are very personally invested in them. But, yeah. so investigators decide to keep the location of the campsite to themselves. So I'm not sure if they broadcast to media that they found the campsite or they just keep that to themselves altogether. But basically this would be used later as hold back evidence, which is, I don't know if we've talked about that before, but basically some people will falsely confess to crimes. Yeah, we have definitely talked about this, but people, some people will falsely confess to crimes. So if you hold back some information and then the person who's confessing either knows it or doesn't know it, you know if they were part of the crime or not. It's just a, a good way to kind of catch ya, you know, gotcha. Yeah. A year after the family's disappearance, the murderer had still not been caught, and in the summer of 1983, it was one of the worst years for tourism nearby Wells Grey Park. So only 18 of the 105 sites were occupied. Which I totally get it. You're telling me that this just happened last year? I am not. That's a brave 18 families. I was just about to say. There's no way
0: yeah no, 18. that's a that's a big number for what just happened.
1: They haven't caught anyone and yeah, and'm I'm, I'm not saying that you know you should live your life in fear, but there's no way. I'm scared to camp there now. I'm scared to camp anywhere now. <laughs> I'm scared to camp there even more now, you know. Around this time, investigators would get another tip. An auto body mechanic from Windsor, Ontario called them to say that two, again, French-speaking men approached him and told him that they had recently removed a camper from their truck. The truck had modifications that resembled the one that George had made, and this was not public information. The men asked the mechanic if he could paint the truck. They asked for this to be done as kind of a midnight paint job, which basically means kind of like a no-record cash transaction, hmm. a little sketchy. They also asked the mechanic if he knew how to get rid of two guns. Oh my god yikes yeah also how do you know that it's okay to ask a stranger that like is it just like a vibe like you're like yeah like he'll know and it's like it's a mechanic it's not like it's someone like at a pawn shop the mechanic had been in trouble with the law before so he kind of tried to stay out of it i guess but he did give well he didn't but that's what he says he did he gave them the name of a man in detroit who could maybe help them out After weeks of coordinating, investigators finally arranged everything with the FBI and wanted to head to Detroit to finally, you know, figure this out and interview this man. This was a promising lead for them. But right before they were about to head out, they get a call. The camper was discovered by forest rangers at the top of Trophy Mountain. Trophy Mountain is a mountain in East Central British Columbia, Canada, located in the Southeast region of Wells Gray Provincial Park. The camper had never left. It was just, this park is so, so big. dense that they were never, they never found it until that day. So yeah, I just, I feel like it's hard to picture, but yeah. yeah, <laughs> It's like a whole country. <laughs> no, seriously. And just like the camper, the car had been burnt, but obviously not well enough because the license place was still legible. So they were able to easily connect it to the family. There was also an obvious bullet hole in the camper. Again, just obvious connection to the crime also do not burn things in provincial parks that's how you start wildfires oh my and, God. Uh, <laughs> yeah is just, just uh, i mean that's the- not the biggest sin here but it's <laughs> it's there <laughs> it wasn't it was an opportunity for a wildfire to start the truck was lifted out of the forest by a helicopter and flown down the mountain to a flatbed truck where it was taken to the RCMP crime lab in Vancouver. I would love to see what a crime lab looks like. Me too. I like love how we do this now cuz I just like feel like I'm part of the true crime world and when like I'm really not, but I just just like following an investigation or just being part of like crowdsourcing or solving something and it's just yeah. so cool. It's it so is. cool. Because investigators believed the camper had never left the area, they thought that the murderer must be local and had tried to dispose of the truck down the mountains, but it got stuck in the underbrush. So basically, like we said, huge, dense park. To be able to do what he did, you would need to know the area is what investigators figured okay the following quote is from the stories of the unsolved article
0: investigators returned to the basics once again knocking on doors a young detective caught a break when a woman told him about a local by the name of david shearing who told her he found a vehicle with a bullet hole in the Trophy Mountain area. This piqued their interest and they began to delve into
1: Shearing's past. So in the detective's episode, the investigator interviewed again, like I said, his name is Eastham. says that a young investigator had to actually go back to the home where they got this tip because when he originally went, I think there was kind of a weird dynamic between the husband and wife and the husband didn't want the wife to like give any information because he, he knew of the person that was mentioned. So. So he just got like a weird feeling and he actually eventually turned back around when the husband wasn't home and ended up getting this tip, which is pretty awesome if you ask me.
0: David Shearing was a
1: logger who would previously
0: been booked for assault, drug possession,
1: and DUI. So he had actually been recently arrested for Stealing over forty thousand dollars of tools, and he had been released and was under agreement to stay in the area, working until he had to return to court. Forty thousand dollars worth of tools—that's a lot of tools.
0: <laughs> yeah, like tools can be expensive, but that's and a lot in, of money
1: in the eighties. And in
0: the, in the yeah, and in the eighties, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: But this sort of makes sense. Like he's—it's not like he. Well, I don't know. I was gonna say it's not like it was anything violent, but you just said it was booked for assault, so. They let him out, it's a decision that they made, it turned out not to be the best one, but I could kind of see, I guess, why they might have done it, they thought that he might not have been a flight risk or that he wasn't at risk for reoffending in a physical way, I'm not sure.
0: There were rumors floating around town that he had a thing for young girls, and it was believed by many that due to the lack of evidence, He'd gotten away with the fatal hit and run of a local teenager.
1: I don't know how this is like a rumor that goes around. <laughs> so true. Like a hit and run of a local teenager like that is awful and the fact that it's rumored that he did it but nothing's been done about it what is going on in this town it was also learned
0: that shearing lived near the murder scene as well as the two dump sites and as such was aware of the land and its terrain detective Eastham and constable ken libel brought shearing in for questioning they got him first to admit to the hit and run which he claimed to have been an accident when asked why he didn't report it to the police He said he was worried about his mother finding out. This is a grown man, right? Oh yeah. Like still scared of his mother.
1: So investigators actually interviewed a man called Ross, who was one of David's closest friends before they spoke to David. And he said, he just tells, this is why I'm like wondering what, why he hadn't been charged for this before, because Ross just like really admits to investigators that he was in the car when David did this hit and run on this teenager. And I tried so hard to find information. I think it was a 16 year old boy is the, the most information I could find, I just wanted to say something about him like this is another victim of this man and that's awful and the fact that it was just like meh that was a rumor that was going around town and it feels like and it feels like at least from my research and the things that I've seen that nothing was really investigated thoroughly because if you just had asked his friend he would have just given up that information anyway I feel for this family too because that is awful. Just the thought of someone being out there, this 16-year-old or teenager or whatever was walking home after, you know, hanging out with some friends, and it was dark and it was the nighttime, and that's how your loved one dies, alone in the dark, and someone just hits them and doesn't value human life enough to stop is just a really awful thought. First of all, do not drive drunk. If you cannot drive, if you've taken substances that make it so it impairs your driving, Please do not get behind the wheel of a car. There's no excuses anymore. From two clicks of a button, you can order an Uber wherever you are. And if you can't, well, too bad, crash at someone's house. Sleep where you are. I don't care if you're in the bathroom at a bar, you're sleeping there because it's just not worth it. It's reported that his brother was actually a sheriff and that his dad had died of cancer and he was taking care of his mom who was living in a nursing home. Another mama's boy. I wasn't going to say it, but you said it, so (laughs) we all know. We all know the type. So I think he mostly admitted to the hit-and-run because he basically wanted to distract from admitting to other stuff that he will eventually admit to anyway. So I'll let you get back to your quote.
0: I just feel like you can't distract someone from a murder case. Either. It's like, oh, I just,
1: I just did the hit-and-run, but you know, <laughs> not the other thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. The investigators turned to talk of the Bentley Johnson murder, where they got Shearing to implicate himself by giving the name of the murder site, which was Bear Creek,
1: which hadn't been released to the public. So there's that good old hold back evidence. So this dumb dumb basically, he's like, Oh, have you ever been to the campsite where the bodies were found? Or, or no, sorry, not where the bodies were found, but have you ever been to the campsite where the family was camping? And he's like, No, I don't really hang around the Bear Creek area. Oh my god. It's like, Gotcha. Wow. They're so good.
0: Investigators just like they're pros. They're really good at what they do.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: He then detailed how the murder transpired. Shearing claimed the murders occurred on August 10th, 1982. He said he'd been watching the family and had wanted their possessions.
1: So I guess he was basically like walking at night and then he like stumbled upon this family and like watched them for a little bit as they were around the campfire and in the woods, which is so creepy. So creepy. He even thought he had been spotted by the family, so he kind of like went home. But the next night he came back and this is when he basically snuck up on the family, I guess, while they were sitting at the campfire. And yeah, the family was all shot in the head, each one of them.
0: He shot George, Edith, Bob, and Jackie first before turning the gun on Karen and Janet as they slept in the tent. He then put the bodies in the car and drove it to the spot where it was discovered before setting it ablaze and returning for the camper. He had initially wanted to keep it, but upon seeing news coverage, had decided to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So basically, he did all of this because he wanted the camper and then realized That he messed up and now he can't have the camper, so he really killed them for no reason.
1: So what he's saying is that he did all of this, yeah, to steal all their possessions. He wanted what they had. He was a a thief, obviously, from his past record. So that's what he's saying. We'll get into it. There's more to it, I guess. There's more to it. But this is his original story that this was his motive, which like there's no motive that is good enough to be able to like justify that you did this. But that is for sure not one. Like that is Insanity. It should be at the
0: bottom of your list if anything.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like if anything like people like wander off from their campsites all the time to like go fishing and do all these different activities. Like it wouldn't have I'm overanalyzing it, but that's a garbage motive if you ask me. So, Detective Eastman basically couldn't, you know, shake the feeling that there was something more to this. Like we're saying it doesn't really make any sense, right? I mean, they're happy that he admitted to it during the initial investigation. It feels somewhat solved to them but he went to visit David Shearing on the day of his sentencing to try and kind of prime more information out of him. It just wasn't sitting well with him. Finally, David Shearing admitted to Eastham that he'd been watching Karen and Janet throughout the duration of their camping trip and had wanted to be with them. Yeah, this case gets much worse. So basically, what was said earlier, the rumors that he had killed someone from a hit and run and had an interest in little girls. That's where this is coming into play here so he basically killed the adults and he abducted the little girls and he kept them alive for about a week oh my god that makes me so nauseous i know disgusting but he sexually abused them while he kept them for a week and then eventually killed them i'm guessing you know went back to find the car and put the bodies in the trunk this man is a true monster and the fact that this is the only crime that we know of that he did like this like not a hit and run but this type of brutal crime it just like makes me wonder a little bit like how do you escalate from basically like a drunken hit and run which is your fault but that compares nowhere to someone again, murdering three generations of families and abducting little girls. Thankfully, the investigators persevered and they caught him and they got him to admit to the reality of how horrible he is. And on April 16th of 1984, David Cheering pled guilty to six counts of second degree murder. This made me so mad. Like, We've talked about the difference between second degree and first degree murder, and how first degree murder is more like premeditated stuff, and second degree murder is more heat of the moment. Like, the, obviously, those are not exact definitions, but it's that kind of style. To me, this man watched this family and came back and then killed them. Like, how is this not first degree murder? And I know there's probably some legal explanation somewhere, but I just think, no, that was insulting to me. I was mad about it and he's in jail, so it's fine, but it's not fine. I I just was not okay with it. No, I agree.
0: It's not fine. And you know what, earlier you mentioned that he didn't want his mom to find out about the rumor of the hit and run. You know what, I hope she was alive to hear the fact that he did this to A family, little girls, because I feel like to someone that's this horrible, if they care that much about what their mom thinks, like that would be worse than being sentenced to prison. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. And the
1: detective Eastham actually talks about that in the the detective show. He says like we use like the basically the mama's boy thing to be like you need to come clean. You know, basically like holding him accountable for his stuff and saying like your mom would want you to be honest with us and to. You know pay for the things that you've done and it seems to have worked obviously at sentencing this is what supreme court justice harry mckay had to say
0: a cold-blooded senseless execution of six defenseless and innocent people a slaughter that devastated three
1: generations in a single bound what a tragedy what a waste and for what he was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years this would mean like all of our kind of heavy sentences this is The max that you can get in Canada, so he gets parole hearings, which is tough and tough for the family and it brings this stuff all back in the news and everyone's talking about it again and his name is in front lines and all of this stuff and i i just can't imagine being a family member of someone who's gone through something horrible like this and every so often i have to stand up and say like there's there's no way you can let this man out of prison for crimes like this like you shouldn't have to
0: you know what i mean like it it shouldn't be a thing where it keeps being brought up and the family keeps being Put through something like that for someone else's disgusting, horrible
1: actions. It's hard because I feel like we tiptoe in the justice system between like too lenient and too severe, and it feels like it never fits perfectly, especially for the crimes that we talk about on this podcast. In September of 2008, David Shearing was up for parole. The National Parole Board ruled that he still had violent sexual fantasies and had not completed his sex offender treatment. He was not ready for freedom. His second application was in 2012. He was also rejected. He's now going by David, a different last name, David Ennis. Um, I don't care if he wants to change his name, he can be David Shearing. Anyway, so if you want to look up some information, some of the information is under the second last name that he changed his last name to, but we're not going to really give him that respect. So he applied again in 2014, and then he withdrew the application about a month before the hearing. So that's kind of all the information I have about that. In the meantime, friends and families of the Bendley and Johnsons created a petition and gathered 15,200 and 58 signatures to urge the parole board not to release him. They did this in preparation for his 2021 appeal, and it was again, thankfully rejected. But imagine just last year, he had another appeal. Like I can't, this really, I know the justice system, blah blah, I can't, this man gets the respect and like decency to like show up at these, uh, I, no, no, No. no. This next part is from the CTV article mentioned above. Many relatives of the victims spoke during the
0: 2021 hearing as well as friends. One of them was Tammy Arashenkoff, who was Janet's childhood friend. She says he should never be released, calling him a beast that stalked the family. He's a coward that our children will never be safe from. He is the monster under our bed that we all fear. Good has a duty to always fight against evil. Shelley Bowden, a relative of the victims, was in grade 12 when the murders took place. We never forget, she told CTV News following the hearing. It's still so fresh, years later. It's never gone away. It never will until he dies. She is relieved he was again denied parole, but she worries he could be granted freedom in the future.
1: So I did uh do some research for the petition and I think it's closed now. But if it does reopen in the future, we will definitely share it on our social media so we can all get on there and sign and You know, stand in solidarity with the family and friends of the Bentley and Johnson families because this man cannot get out. There are some things that I don't know if you can be rehabilitated for because... Yeah. How are you feeling?
0: (laughs) You know what? This is disgusting, awful, you know, a really, really bad case. But in one of the prison documentaries I was watching the other day, a lot of the inmates were saying that once you're sentenced to 10 years or more, you should never get out because of what prison does to you when you're in there for that long. It's just worse once you get out. So for someone like him who would have been, if he ever gets, you know, parole or whatever it is, if he gets out, how is he going to know how to actually live in, you know, a normal society? And yeah, I don't know. I just think it's. Yeah, it's-
1: he wasn't even doing it successfully before. And I would like love to see some kind of comparison between American and Canadian prison and to know how similar, how different it is. Mm uh-huh. hmm. Uh- 'Cause we hear like a lot of horrible stuff coming from American prisons. And I, I feel like especially if we go back to the Mocha Dawkins case, it sounds just as awful in Canada. Mm-hmm. But it'd be really interesting to get like a comparison of yeah. like a couple of people that have done both. And I I don't know if anyone knows of any documentary or anything like that that exists out there that maybe depicts both, maybe not in the same documentary, but that has a good narrative about what living in prison is like for both of these countries, then it'd be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely someone who does something like this, I I don't think I think he should just just live it out there and just stay locked behind those bars.
0: This week we will be donating to BC Crime Stoppers. This is from their website. Each local Crime Stoppers chapter is a registered charitable society working with citizens, the media and law enforcement agencies to make their community safe. We encourage people to share information about criminal activity, especially crimes such as illicit drug manufacturing, wanted persons, and illegal firearms.
1: So we picked this organization to donate to this week because of how much of a role crowdsourcing and tips and stuff played in this case. Crime Stoppers is a great resource. If you, like mentioned in the description, if you have any tips or any concerns and you want to call Crime Stoppers, let them know. They work hand in hand with the police and they are just great to have and they are in most communities, which is pretty awesome.
0: So if you'd like to contribute to Crime Stoppers, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram slash TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram. So please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at TerribleTrueCrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us
1: and see you next time.